Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Welcome back, everyone. In today's episode, we're kicking off National Preparedness Month with a special guest from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, Associate Director Eric McNulty. If you're unfamiliar, the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, also known as NPLI, is a joint program of Harvard University's School of Public Health and School of Business. It provides safety and security leaders with crisis leadership training. Eric is a celebrated thought leader, author, field researcher, and educator. I was excited to talk to him about his work and how it helps safety professionals overcome challenges, make tough decisions, and excel in their roles. Let's listen in. Eric, can you give us a high-level overview of the mission and goals of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative? Happy to do that. You know, the MPLI, we are all about improving the leadership capability and capacity of those who are in safety, security, disaster preparedness, response, and related fields. You know, so often the situations arise where these individuals are expected to lead, yet when you look at their training, their development over the years, often it's very technical and not a lot about the human factors. How do we actually lead people? How do you lead up to a, a CEO or a political official? How do you lead across different functions? So those are the kinds of things we address. And we've been doing it now for just about 20 years and really have seen a difference in the field as people master both the what to do, but also how to be, how to think, and how to come into a situation where you can bring people together and move them toward the best possible outcome in a unified manner. Uh, That's so critical. What's one thing you've seen organizations do really well in emergency preparedness plans? You know, increasingly, it's a, a fairly recent phenomenon, but more and more, they're actually using data to drive the plans. So it's not the sort of, oh, we've picked a goal out of the hat and said, you know, this year we're going to focus on this. They're actually looking at the data of where the risks are, where are the uh, the consequences appearing in the organization. So one company I've worked with globally took this very seriously. When they looked around the world, they saw the number one cause of employee death as well as absences were automobile accidents things related to automobile safety. And so they got very serious about that. They looked at how they could improve their vehicles, how they could improve driver education. And they didn't just look at what happened at work. They looked at someone their whole life. And so one of the things they instituted was a mandatory safety belt policy. If you're caught not wearing a safety belt in any vehicle, personal, professional, you know, third party, like a taxi or an Uber, you're fired, first offense, done. They track that in every region around the world. They've got goals. They've got measurements to see how they're doing. And they brought that down significantly. And when they thought they had that a good handle on that, they then moved to number two, which was heart disease. And they began looking at what kind of food are we serving? How about exercise? All the different things that go into that. And so data drove the decisions. And it actually helped them bring it into the business units, get buy-in from the executive team, because they could see you really knew what you were talking about. And you were making a a tangible difference to the company and and their ability to deliver for customers. How recently did people start taking more of a data-driven approach? Is this like within the last five years? Has it started 25 years ago? How long has it been? It's the last five to 10 years. I think as we've seen the maturation of, of uh, predictive analytics and, and more both the computing power, the amount of data and the sophistication to be able to analyze it and not just in remote parts of the company, but where it's gone more broadly. And again, actually pull out what are the issues that matter and what, what's the impact that's really going to move the needle here. And then you, you can more precisely target your efforts. 
yeah, it seems like investment in an organization flows to where the data shows evidence there could be benefit. And over the years, people in the safety positions have been more just reacting to things as they occur, not thinking into the future. And when you start analyzing the numbers and you can bring a case to executives, then they're like, oh, okay, this makes total sense. Why, why did we do this 20 years ago? <laughs> exactly. It goes from safety goes from being a, a nice to have and gee, we'd love to do it to, wow, I see how we, why we ought to be doing this right now. And you know, I work a lot with a lot of the high-risk industries. So they get it because workplace injuries and fatalities are a serious thing because of the work they do. And boom, the value of a life saved, the value of fewer absences, fewer injuries, all the things that drop ultimately right to the bottom line. And now we were able to show it in tangible form that even the rather slow and dim-witted CFO and company can get because the data is <laughs> there, right? <laughs> That's fantastic. (laughs) Well, on the opposite side of things, what are some common mistakes or pitfalls that you see organizations make when it comes to emergency preparedness? One of the biggest ones I've seen and one of the ones I've tried really hard to address is when people try to get the organization to solve the problem as defined by the emergency management or emergency preparedness folks, rather than looking at what's the problem that the end user is facing. Mm. You know, so again, we see lots of you know, PSAs and we have researched by colleagues here at Harvard. PSAs, unless they are addressing what people perceive to be an immediate threat, make no impact at all. None. And so trying to get people to prepare for, again, the risk that you say, hey, we should be worried about X. No, I, what I find is find out what the people you need to move, find out what they're worried about. Is it Y, Z, whatever it happens to be. Help them solve that and in doing so, you build the relationship, you build the credibility to be able then to circle back around and say, oh, did you know we really need to be worried about this particular risk over here? And now because you've helped them solve their problem, they're more open to you coming in and showing them other problems that need to be solved. So if you really can build those, build those plans around the risks that everyone sees and everyone experiences, you're much more likely to get buy-in. Yeah, that's a fascinating look at human psychology. If you just start by saying, look, I'm not here to force anything on you. What's keeping you up at night? What can I help you with? Exactly. You establish that relationship, you show that you care. And then once they get into that mindset, then you can start introducing other things that your secret agenda on the back end. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You, You instantly gain relevance because you're talking about the problem they want to solve, right? Now you're, oh, come on in, have a cup of coffee. Let's talk for a while. Whereas before you may have had a hard time getting on the agenda. Yeah. Can you tell us more about secondary crises? Specifically, what are they and how can organizations prevent them? So one of the things I have seen over the years, I've been doing this for a while now, is that you can't always prevent the initial incident, right? You can't prevent the hurricane. You can't prevent the earthquake. You may not even be able to prevent the the active shooter or some other event. What you can always prevent is a secondary crisis of a fumbled response. So if you're slow in your communications, if you don't express empathy and take care of people, if you aren't actively engaged with stakeholders, including you know, the public sector when they're, when they're involved, if uh, employees are involved, both employees and their families with the community, if you don't get those steps right, all of a sudden you get behind in the cycle of the crisis and it's really hard to catch up. You know, every crisis has a victim, a villain, and a hero. Now, which role do you want to be in? We all want to be the hero, right? And you may not be able to avoid being the victim, but you usually can avoid being the villain. If people show that if you can show people that you took the steps to prevent, that you could to prevent what happened, and that you're being aggressive at taking care of and making sure things are right after what happened, you can often avoid that villain designation. And if you don't, 
I'm not going to name companies here because I don't want to shame anybody, but I've, I have researched and talked about crises that we call you know, the, the gift that keeps on giving because it doesn't go away because the company just keeps stumbling and stumbling and stumbling. Whereas you look at those organizations that do it well and the bad things that happen to them, it tends to be a one or a two day news cycle. It just comes and it goes quickly. They've regained their reputation. Their ability to operate is not, is not impeded. So it really isn't a crisis. It, be, it may have been a, an adverse incident. It may have been, have been a disaster, but it didn't become a crisis because they handled things right and kept it moving forward. What's the critical difference between organizations that do that well versus those that don't? Is it cultural? Like, what is it? I think a lot of it comes down to culture, to values and principles. Mm. The organizations that I've seen that do it well, they really are clear. So if, you know, when it's people, if they really say people are our most important asset, they are taking care of people and they're out there and, and again, not afraid to talk about what happened. And it's always, of course, when bad things happen, the, the risk of litigation, but they can come out and say, we feel terrible about what happened. We don't think it was our product or our service that caused it, but Here's what we're doing to help the families, or here's where we're fully cooperating with authorities. They've built it in from top to bottom as well. They're organizations where, again, the folks in the C-suite don't just talk to the safety and security people when something bad has happened. They've started that conversation. They've started building that relationship much, much earlier. And that's something that professionals in, in safety and security can really do, can instigate. They can do it. We call it leading up. You could do that in part by finding out, you know, asking people questions is one, but, you know, and... What decisions, Peter, do you want to make sure that you're the one making them? Should we have an incident at our facility? Hmm, let me think about that. Well, if we're going to close the facility, yeah, I, I want to be the one who makes that call. Great. What are you going to want to know in order to be able to make that decision? Mm. And what I'm doing now, when I'm, when I'm going through this process is, first of all, it's going to help me brief up to you when the bad thing happens. Because I can anticipate what, your, what decisions you're going to want to make. I can anticipate what information you're going to want to have. And I can come in and say, Peter, we've got A, B, and C. We're still working on, on taking care of D, E, and F. But I can have that where you're going to have faith in me and confidence in me. And we're not going to have to build that relationship on the fly. And you know, executives like to be known for making good decisions. When you talk to them about what decisions do you want to make? What are the ones that you want somebody else to make or you want to delegate? It, it helps them find a useful role in the process. It, find, it helps them situate themselves relative to what you're going to do. And you also can talk through, again, some of the implications. So if they say, you know, gee, I really want to decide the evacuation routes for our people, should we have to evacuate our campus? Well, do you really? How about we bring you some options and you can look at them and we'll explain to you the, you know, the pluses and minuses of each one of these and keep somebody out of the weeds. But you can begin to, again, stake out that terrain where your expertise is as the subject matter expert is going to, flow, going to come in and then where that executive level person really needs to make the decision or really wants to. You want, because if you start battling over that in the middle of a response, you're, you're going to be in trouble. And you're the person with less power, you're probably going to lose that battle. Yeah, it seems like a, a big thing that executives always try to avoid, especially in moments of crisis, is a deer in the headlights look. Right. And if you can come to the table, like you just said early on and say, hey, let's just assume something like this happens. How are you going to want to respond? What kind of information are you going to want to have? Let's plan on that now. So when it does happen, you're not looking like a deer in the headlights. That's right. And that's, this is why it's so important to get executives to at least once a year go through a full-scale exercise of some sort. Because A, you want them to know what's going to happen. You want to take care of any questions or objections they have in that setting as opposed to a real incident. And you also want to find out if they're not very good in a crisis situation, <laughs> which can be really hard. When you get that deer in the headlights or the person who panics, I always try to remind people that even in crisis, 
There's managing the crisis, leading the crisis, but you also have to keep the business going. And keeping the business going is a really important job. So it may be better for that CEO or the CFO to actually, you know what, make sure our customers are happy, make sure product is flowing, make sure the business is running. And yes, we get the folks over here who are professionals at the response. We're going to take care of this. We're going to brief you twice a day or whatever the right cadence is. Because when you give them a job to do, they will feel useful. They don't feel left out. And you can try and keep them out of trouble, as it were, right? You're trying to save the boss from him or herself. But particularly, if somebody is really good at this, Great. Bring them in. Designate somebody else to keep the day-to-day going. Bring them into the crisis response because they're really good at it. But if they're bad at it, you want to find it out early. And say if you give them an important job to do, they will go do it. They feel included and they don't feel like you're, they're being left out of an important mission. Yeah, that's excellent advice. What are some tangible things an organization can do to foster a collaborative culture of preparedness? You know, I think you really need to, to bake it into the everyday activities. You know, the example I gave earlier about the seatbelts is, is a great one where it applies to every employee. It shows we care about your health and your, your safety. This is why we do it. I've been in you know, organizations where everyone holds a handrail, no matter when you're going up and down stairs. And that, that came up in the oil and gas business. That's fairly common because if you're on an offshore rig and you slip and fall, chances are you're going to get seriously hurt and you may die. So that even if you're in an office building, Everybody has the same culture. This is, this is safety first. We hold on to the handrail. Doing safety briefings before meetings on a regular basis, just make it part of the routine. And I really think, you know, at a time when organizations are battling for talent, when you're trying to, to stand out in a highly competitive marketplace, that dedication and commitment to safety actually makes you, helps you stand apart. We actually do care about our people. We actually do do our best to make sure that everything we do is the best it can be. We don't cut corners. That's something that people appreciate. I mean, would it be a customer's employees, potential employees? I think it really comes through and gives people a competitive advantage of the marketplace. Do you have any other advice or perhaps best practices that could help our audience become more effective leaders in the safety and security space? Well, I think one thing is to be sure to think of themselves as leaders. Right. If you don't think of yourself as a leader, no one else is going to either. So you are, no matter what your your role, your responsibility in the organization, you can lead. You can bring people together to achieve a common goal. You can uh, help them move things forward. They can be following you, even though you may not be, you know, super high up in the hierarchy. And then I also think it's important to be very careful with language. And you can say, okay, this is an academic guy. He's going to get into linguistics. But I, I really do think it's important. So I think we really overuse the word crisis. It's like breaking news. You know, if you turn on the cable news, everything is breaking news. Right. And so a crisis is, is an event that imperils your ability to operate or your long-term reputation. And if you're a public company, you're, you know, the, your stock price, that's a real crisis. We have disasters. We have incidents. We have emergencies. If you are prepared and you handle those well, they don't become crises. So let's reserve the word crises for the things that really are crises, because then you can focus attention. Another one is the word unique. I've heard the word unique applied to the COVID-19 pandemic way too many times. If something is truly unique, it's never going to happen again. So why have any lessons learned? Why pay that much attention? Let's get through it and put it behind us. If instead you talk about what's distinct, you know, we looked at this, at this pandemic, how did it play out in ways that we expected? What were unexpected? Okay, how do we think about those unexpected consequences and how do we prepare better for them next time? Now you've turned it into a learning experience. And so these little plays of language, I think are actually really, really important to creating the mindset where people understand and they buy into and pay attention to the safety and security people. 
I'm going to recommend everyone go back and listen to that last two to three minutes because you had so much information in there that was really good in getting people to think the right way about viewing crisis versus emergency versus disaster. That was fantastic. So rewind that. Listen again, guys. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) When you think of all the organizations and safety professionals that you've helped throughout your career, is there a particular moment or maybe a project that made you really proud? There are many, and not because of the work I've done, but because of the work I've seen others do after they've been through the program or when I've had the opportunity to stand alongside them. And I think one of the things that makes the MPLI unique is we do our research in the field. So we're not sitting here at Harvard looking through books, trying to figure out theories. We actually deploy during events and soon thereafter to see what's happening. When we go into an organization, we do a lot of background work. And so we get to see how the people who do it well do it and what challenges them and what makes things difficult. And so we did a project a few months back. We did a research report with uh, the Disaster Recovery Institute International, looking at lessons learned at big global companies during the first year or so of the pandemic. And anybody who wants that, when they you contact me, I can get you a copy. It's it's a public document. And we talked to nine global companies who wanted to look at were there any cross-cutting lessons learned? So not just industry by industry, but how, what applied to retail and healthcare and aviation and across the board. And why I pull that one out is a number of the interviewees were people who I knew through our programs. They've been through our programs. I'd gotten to know them. And to hear them say that some things, some tools, some techniques, some ways of thinking we had helped them develop were really useful and that they now had lessons to share with others because they had gotten it right. That to me, that's why I do what I do. I'm not on the front lines of this stuff, but I can help people you know, better understand how to do what they do. And if I can increase their ability to do it well, just a little bit better, that's what gives me the satisfaction because we're making our organizations and our communities safer and more secure. Does NPLI have any upcoming initiatives or events that might be of interest to our listeners? Absolutely. We're always busy. Now, I know in October, the beginning of October, we have our next Crisis Leadership Core Principles and Practices online course. It's six two-hour sessions over three weeks, so it's really easy to fit into schedules. It's very cost-effective and affordable. We'd love folks to come through that because it gives you an introduction to what it means to lead through a high-consequence, high-pressure event. And uh, we'd love to see more of your folks join us. And generally speaking, who are the folks who might benefit from that title in an organization, maybe? So you find people in safety, security, business continuity, health, safety, and environment is how it's termed in some uh, organizations. In the online course, we get people from entry-level managers up through senior leaders with a really interesting mix. How can our audience connect with you and learn more about what you do? I know you've got a few books out there with your name on them. I do. The most recent one is called You're It, Crisis Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most, which you can find at your local bookseller or on Amazon. You can find the NPLI at uh, npli.sph.harvard.edu. I'm really easy to find on LinkedIn. And you can also find me on Twitter at at Richard Earth or follow us at at Harvard NPLI. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Eric, and all of our listeners out there for joining us on the Employee Safety Podcast. If you want more actionable advice on leading through a crisis, be sure to subscribe at Alert Media's website or follow it on your favorite podcast players. We'd love it if you could give us a quick rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.